from Madison, Wisconsin in the United States of Global Hegemony, it's Didactic Syncast, with your host Eric P. And welcome to the Didactic Syncast, your overview of everything important on the planet Earth. Hello, Earthlings. Oh, my goodness. What the what? It's uh, Saturday, the 16th of January, 2021. I just got uh, I'm Eric S. Piotrowski, a writer and educator in Wisconsin, USA. I'm known as Duke Scath in the world of video games and Twitter, a.k.a. Scartol in the world of Wikipedia and Reddit. Uh, on this show, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. So buckle up and let's get started. A brand new kid in showbiz. For knowledge, I'll persevere. But for now, do me a favor. favor. Let me in here. And we can find it around the space. Okay, the reason I'm singing that is because, oh my God, so much has happened. I don't even know where to start. I used to do this show using a Macintosh mini computer. It recently died. So I had to find a new way to do my recording for the veteran gamers and this show. And I realized that the hard drive also died on that. I had an external hard drive. I tried to copy stuff over. I couldn't do it. And I realized only recently that the sound clips I used for this show were on that hard drive and I've lost them forever. So I took a sample from an old Syncast for that intro there. And because I wanted to get this recording done and then I'm going to fix the other recordings and find ways to remake them maybe, or, or get them from old Syncast or, or whatever. I'll find a way to deal with it. The, the reason I mentioned, so, so that's why I don't have the usual sound clip that I had there. So I just got done with a conversation with uh, my buddy, Greg DeLacy, who is somebody that nobody would ever expect me to be buddies with because he voted for Trump twice and he is a pretty conservative Republican. Um, And but we had a really good discussion because he posted something on Twitter that I really disagreed with and I tried to refute it and other people had responded vehemently toward it. And I said to myself, like, look, why don't we talk about this? Why don't we? Because I I think it's so difficult for us to have conversations across vast difference. But that's one of the most important things we can do right now. Now, a lot of people on Twitter have been saying that we don't owe these people anything and they've been messing up the country and, and, you know, it's about power and they've made that clear and you don't bring a, you know, beanbag to a knife fight and, and that's what their Democrats have been doing and, and our side loses because we're not more militant. And, and, and I, as I say in the discussion that I have with Greg, like I understand where militancy comes from and that it serves an important purpose at times. But I also believe that at the end of the day, we are human beings with so much in common and, and those of us in the United States, we are Americans and we that brings commonality that we ought to be able to use as a way to have conversations. And as Cornel West always says, like, I'm not going to avoid telling the truth. I'm not going to put my ideology to the side, but I'm also not going to be dictated to by my ideology. And I'm never going to see people on other sides of the barricades as demons or evil monsters who have no humanity in them, because that's how they see a lot of us. That's how a lot of them see a lot of us. So therefore, you know, we have to be the ones who are willing to take those chances and have those difficult conversations uh, while standing up for what we believe in and making things clear. 
And it, I'll be honest, but people, th- it was hard at times. I had a lot of adrenaline in my system while we were having this discussion. And my hands are still kind of trembling because uh, there were things I was so angry about. And I wanted to make sure I was speaking clearly and letting Greg talk. And you'll hear me get angry at certain moments in this conversation. I don't think that's bad. That's a bad thing. I think that, you know, Audre Lorde said that anger is filled with information and, and energy. And, and we ignore that to our peril. I, I, but at the same time, I'm a big believer in mindfulness and our need to not let our anger control us and not act always from a moment of rage and, you know, that high passion. So, um, yeah, it was a really good discussion. There were a couple of things I didn't get to say in the discussion just for various reasons, mostly because I wanted to let Greg talk and our conversation, you know, had to have an organic course to it. And I could have interrupted every five seconds to point something out, but I didn't want to do that. But one of the benefits to having your own podcast is that you can say whatever you want, whenever you want. (laughs) So when we talked about the coronavirus, um, he mentions at one point that, you know, we could have done things the way China did. If you believe their numbers, then they put a clamp on it. And, you know, they had a pretty totalitarian approach. And and that's true. And I don't trust China, the Chinese government. I mean, look at what they're doing to the Rohingya. I mean, come on. Um, the However, uh, sorry, is, no, no, the Uyghurs are the ones in China. Sorry, the Rohingya are the one being persecuted by the Burmese government. Uh, <laughs> oh, Muslims in Central Asia, you have such an easy time of it. Anyway, um... I guess China's East Asia. Anyway, the point is that we don't have to look to China for an example of a country that did things better. I don't I don't know if they did things better than the United States or not. I don't trust the Chinese government's numbers because they execute people all the time and they don't report the numbers on that. So, yeah, I agree with you on that, Greg. However, I should have said and I wanted to say and I just didn't. But I will say now that South Korea is not a dictatorship. Right. South Korea is a pretty open, free country. Right. They have a population of, I looked it up here, uh, 51.71 million people. So it's what, maybe, I don't know, what is that? I don't, that is the reason I'm not a math teacher. Maybe a sixth of the U.S. population. But they had 1,236 deaths from coronavirus so far. We've had in the United States 393,000 deaths so far. That It's not just that mistakes were made, as Greg kept saying, in the passive voice construction, right? It's that, and as, as I said, and as he responded to, and I'm not going to try to beat this point when he's not here to, you know, explain himself. I'll I, I just say what I said on the, on the show is that it's a matter of homicidal negligence on the part of the Trump administration. That's how I feel about it. So I think South Korea is a good th- country to compare us to in terms of what we did or didn't do, uh, and the horrible human consequences that have happened as a result. Um, yeah. So I think that's everything I wanted to say at the outset. Uh, I, I really appreciate Greg doing this conversation because I'm sure it wasn't easy for him just as it wasn't easy for me. But I do think these conversations are important. And as we continue to fight about next steps and where we go from here and and how we try to make the country better, uh, I, I, I think we should not ignore the threat of white supremacist violence. And I do think we need to make sure that Donald Trump can never run for office again and that hate speech is not allowed to spread. But I also think that um, we don't want a civil war in this country again. We don't want people at each other's throats when they should be having conversations. And I, I think that, you know, Cornel West says that he's not a pacifist because I think sometimes you have to go down fighting. 
And I think that may be true, but I think that is sometimes you, that idea of like, sometimes violence is necessary is often an excuse to jump past all the other things that are more difficult, education, dialogue, conversation, you know, Tunisia, this quartet of four organizations in Tunisia got the Nobel Peace Prize because they found a way for their country to come together and avoid the, you know, intercenine fighting and bloodshed that we saw in so much of the Arab Spring. And that's what we want. And, and that, I think, this conversation that we had today, basically what I'm saying is our conversation between me and Greg is as important as what the groups in Tunisia did, that they won the Nobel Peace Prize. We also deserve the Nobel Peace Prize, Greg and I, for having this conversation. So, having said that, here's my conversation with Greg DeLacy. I hope you enjoy. Please, feedback, put comments in Twitter, social media, send me emails, at uh, Duke Scath. Uh, yeah, I'm going to shut up now. And enjoy the show. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repenting because the end of this near. But don't panic, you can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention, you gotta listen to hear. Alright, so we're here with Greg DeLacy. Uh, he is a uh, video game host on the Overseas Connection, uh, just as I am a host on the Veteran Gamers podcast. And we haven't really had a whole lot of one on one conversations. Uh, we mostly talked you know, as members of groups to each other about video games mostly, but we are on pretty different sides of the political spectrum. And so I thought it would be interesting, especially pursuant to a conversation we had online recently, uh, to just sit down and actually talk to each other. So Greg DeLacy, welcome to the uh, Didactic Syncast. Hey, thank you for, for having me on, Eric. And yeah, you know, it's funny. We, we, we have known one another for years. Uh, we banter back and forth we we definitely have been on polar sides of the the twitter spectrum if you will but um we don't get a chance to really talk too much and so uh this is both a treat and uh and and uh, I, there's like this big kind of unknown and what direction this all goes but i think we both uh, at the end of the day we just want to show i think at least from my perspective i really kind of want to show we can have conversations mm -hmm. that even though we are you know, differing in our political opinions and spectrums that we still can have a, a open conversation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I appreciate that. And I, I've always taken it as sort of a point of pride that I, I have worked hard to, and I think I've done a decent job of having conversations with people on other sides of the political discussion without necessarily, you know, uh, throwing away what I believe. And I think that one of the most important things we can do as human beings is to recognize that, you know what, look, this person on the other side of the barricade, so to speak, is still a human being. We are all citizens of the world. You and I are both mm -hmm. Americans. And despite the vast difference between us and the things we feel passionately about, I think it is important to be able to have conversations that remain civil. And I, I don't, I'm going to work really hard to try to remain uh, polite, but I don't know if I can promise that all the time. You know what I mean? Because there are some things that I feel very passionately about, and I'm sure there are some for you as well. But at the end of the day, yeah, as you sure. say, like, uh, I think if we are going to save our civilization from collapse, it's going to require some difficult conversations that don't end up with closure, but that nevertheless give us all food for thought and let us all chew on stuff and get out of our own little bubbles. And I know I'm guilty of living yeah. in a little bubble, just as uh, I know lots of people are. So We all are. We all Absolutely. are for sure, especially in this time. Especially in this uh, time. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, one, one thing I wanted to just uh, before we uh, dive into everything, mm -hmm. I, I did want to say, you know, one of the things 
I really debated, Eric, when you sent that message to me. I was like, mm -hmm. hmm, should I? Shouldn't I? Right. And I kind of went back and forth. But one mm -hmm. of the things that I did, I, I listened to uh, this podcast. I went back and listened to one of your episodes you recorded over, I think it was an August time frame. Mm -hmm. uh, it was on uh, forgiveness. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I really enjoyed that podcast, first of all. So well Thanks. done on your end. Thank you. Um, but it got me thinking about just the whole notion. And I was like, you know what? Let's do this. Mm -hmm. uh, is so that out of the way, let's uh, let's kind of talk. Yeah. Um, so I appreciate that. And I, I my conversation with Rich Webster, I think, was another one where I, you know, he and I don't agree on everything or even a whole lot of stuff. But I do think that. Mm -hmm. And again, this is the sort of this is the last prefatory comment I'll make. But I think that, you know, from my perspective, it's not about us ever convincing each other that we're right about like ideology or like the big picture stuff necessarily, right. but rather to say like, look, I think that there's a lot of stuff that Rich and I do agree on. I think there's probably a lot of stuff that you and I agree on. And, and there's probably a lot of stuff that Robin and I would agree on. You know, for those who don't know, Robin Tate is another person who's in our orbit and, and he and I have had some really kind of tense conversations online and called each other names and right. stuff. And I think one of the big limitations of social media is that first of all, there's this very immediate and intense publicness to it. And so that everybody yeah. feels like their pride is sort of on the line and it's right. abbreviated. Right. And we don't have the nuances of voice even. Uh, and we're not looking at each other right yeah. now. But, you know, when we have a conversation in person, obviously, there's a lot that gets transmitted that way. So I think that's one of the things that makes social media conversations difficult, even though they can be oh, illuminatory, gotcha. they can be useful. But um, so I'm See, glad we, we were we able already, to yeah, have a more deep conversation. Agree. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> there we go. So uh, let's see if we can build on that as we have these conversations about stuff that's pretty tough. So um, all right. So uh, I, I kind of want to dive into this tweet right away that started this whole conversation, but I actually sort of right. want to step back. Let's we'll get to that in a second. Um, okay. Let's talk a little bit about sort of where you're coming from. I, I've talked a lot on the podcast about where I come from in terms of like how what shaped me and molded me. Um, you know, I, I, you live in California now. Did you grow up there? Like, has how has your uh, you know earlier part of your life kind of affected the way you see the world politically? Yeah. No. No. Uh, uh, so I uh, lived my whole life in California, uh, grew up in, uh, well, I, I was born in Southern California, kind of, as I've gotten older, made my way north, mm -hmm. which probably should be the exact opposite. You'd think <laughs> I'd want to be in Southern California, but um, no, I, I live in Northern California now. And, um, you know, I, I had the nuclear family. I had, uh, you know, the kind of growing up uh, experience of having a mom and dad. Uh, they still are together mm -hmm. uh, through thick and thin. So, um, you know, core values have always been uh, to the, con I, I say conservative, but I, I really think if you put me into a bucket, I'm really uh, a, a moderate conservative. I definitely come more to the middle on a lot of kind of where I stand on a lot of things, but I, from a economics, fiscal side of things, I tend to lean much more conservatively. And then, uh, you know, from uh, probably throw the military side of things in there in terms of our, our international relations, I probably get a little bit more conservative. But on a lot of social issues, I, I do also find myself in the middle. Uh, I have a special needs child. So that gives mm. me a whole different spectrum uh, sure. in terms of of uh, just the world. And mm -hmm. so um, and, and, and that's been a very good thing for me. Uh, mm. I, I, I always say, you know, having my son, uh, even though he comes with a ton of challenges, right. has probably been one of the best things to ever happen to me. Sure, um, sure. Because it has opened my eyes to a lot of different things within the world. Yeah. So, 
That's a little bit of me. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. And so, like, you know, we're it seems like we're roughly the same age. Uh, did you and, you know, again, just sort of in curiosity mm-hmm. about like political affiliations. Um, did you vote for John McCain in 2008? Did you vote for Mitt Romney in 2012? No, never voted for Mitt Romney. OK. Um, uh, so, yeah, I, I, I voted for uh, just to kind of I'm trying to I don't think I voted for McCain either. OK. Um I've, I voted for Clinton. I uh-huh. voted for Obama. Interesting. Um, and I also voted for Bush. Okay. Uh, uh, both senior and junior. Okay. Um, and then, you know, with regards to Trump, I did vote for Trump and I voted for him twice. Okay. I will, I will admit that. Okay. I appreciate um, that. But I think the reasoning behind that is the interesting side of it because both times I felt like ultimately i was voting I, I think the first time i voted for trump because um i i did believe into that nuanced message of uh, you know that he was pushing out there of you know i'm not the establishment i am different and and i have a problem with the establishment that we have built in the united states of of our um our political leaders i i feel like <laughs> well they, they, it, it is a, a bit of a pool now is Trump any different? I think that is is highly debatable. Uh, but this go round, uh, the problem I had was I was voting what I felt at the time was the worst of two evils, uh, and and I, and that sounds dramatic. I don't mean that to sound dramatic, but I think that's just kind of the the phrase I would use. Um, I think I voted more against Joe Biden than I did for Donald Trump this go round. Right, and I think a lot of people voted for Joe Biden or, or against Donald Trump than for Joe Biden. You know what I'm saying? I think that's a, right. a pretty I, I, common yeah, thing. I think, so, yeah, okay, I let think me, that... let me, let me continue that okay. if I may, like, mm-hmm. what is it about Joe Biden that you were so opposed to? Well, one, uh, I do have great concern over his mental faculties. I, I, I do honestly believe he is going to be unfit to be president within a couple of years time frame. And so the reality was who are we voting for? It's Kamala Harris. In my in my view, it really is. Kamala Harris truly is the candidate here. It kind of snuck out so many different times within the conversations they would have in the course of their their lead up to the, the run. And I didn't feel Kamala Harris was the best choice for him for vice president. I thought there were much better choices out there. Um, and so ultimately, I kind of was looking at it from her and she, you know, had been the uh, attorney general in California for a, a number of years. Um, I just don't believe in her uh, more so than Joe Biden. Joe Biden, to me, he is a career politician. He he is very well polished. He uh, definitely is presidential sounding, which is, I think, a good thing. Um, I just, I honestly don't see how he is going to last health wise, and so that was just uh, you know one of the biggest concerns, and then. Obviously, you know, there are other aspects to it. Um, I I feel like Joe Biden has a lot of uh, policies he wants to put in place that I'm not necessarily for. Uh, And I don't know that they're being shaped by his own opinion. That's the other kind of uh, aspect to all of this. Uh, I just, I didn't have faith in him at the end of the day. But I will say this, and this is an important thing that I want to get across, and, and and it should be for every election we have, mm-hmm. is that I hope to God 
that Joe Biden is the greatest president we ever had. Mm. I want that to be the case. Right. Because why in the world would I want him to fail? Right. Sure. <laughs> um, you know, I want him to be a good president. And so, you know, at this point, I'm, you know, that we're moving forward. And mm -hmm. so, mm -hmm. hey, I hope he is a good president. Right. Um, and so that's just where I land now. Right. No, I appreciate that. Uh, and there's so many things I want to ask. I, I guess the immediate question is then, you know, in the in the weeks and months leading up to the election, Donald Trump was beating a drum of, you know, fraud and and the mail in voting is fraudulent. Um, did, did you and then, of course, as soon as the elections happened on the night of, he claimed victory. And then we had the blue shift of taking a while to count the right. votes in places like Georgia and Arizona. And then he said, you know, we won and then they're stealing it from us, which, of course, is the thing that caused everybody to be so angry on the Capitol, uh, you know, just over a week ago. I can't believe it's only a week. It feels like a month ago. I know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, did you did, did, when Biden won? Did you believe, did you echo any of those sentiments? I don't, you know, I, I thought about doing some research and like looking through your Twitter feed, but I don't, I don't want to do all that. Like, you know, that was, I think one of the things that has caused the most harm is this, this re repetition of a baseless claim of voter fraud. So how do you feel about all that? Yeah. So, I mean, so it, it's going to be a nuanced response to you. And, and I don't mean to say, I'm not trying to dance around it, but I think, um, there's always been, and, and I think, you know, we have tons of examples of where voter fraud has actually happened. Um, did voter fraud happen in this election? I suspect, yes, we had some tinkering of things here and there. Um, I think there were enough incidences and things being reported on, uh, you know, when you have enough smoke, there is a little bit of fire. Now, I don't think it ever amounted to enough of a level that would change the, the way the election went. And so... You know, I knew he would be filing his claims, and I knew this was his Hail Mary of trying to see if he might be able to get this election turned based on things he was either being told or he was fully, you know, you know, he, he believed. Um, and, and it was his right to, to do that. He, you know, I, I, if I was in his shoes, sure, I would be trying to do everything I could to try and win my election to see if I can get it turned around through legal means. And that's the key thing through legal means. And the courts came back and they, you know, they, uh, the, the overall sentiment has been from pretty much every, every situation of we don't see enough to make us change, you know, the rulings that have happened. Mm -hmm. um, and so from that standpoint, could there have been voter fraud? Sure. Likely. Yeah. In some spots, I'm sure there's stuff that happened that if you really put it to the scrutiny test, it's probably going to fail. But um, I think we have enough. Uh, the, you know, there was enough vote to say, no, he 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 lost. Right. And, and so it seems to me that. like as soon as the courts rule on that, as soon as the Supreme Court says this isn't happening, we're not even hearing this. As soon as 50 cases get thrown out across the country, it's not only irresponsible for Donald Trump to keep saying it and for, you know, everybody to keep repeating it. So not everybody, but, you know, so many people to keep repeating it online. And I'm not accusing you of this, but I feel like it's indicative of the, the, the way that this man functions that. It's just getting people whipped up more and more on something that, as you say, the courts have decided is not there is no merit to it. When Bill Barr comes out and says there's no merit to this, then it crosses over into 
basically sedition. I don't understand how anybody could look at it. And this, okay, so this sort of brings us to this tweet that you put out. Uh, For all those saying the protest was an insurrection slash terrorist, look, it was a protest that got ugly. It was no different than the mostly peaceful protests we saw in 2020 from multiple cities, mostly peaceful in quotes there. Uh, Cool your jets. This was no coup despite the crazies. Like, I totally disagree with that because they were chanting, hang Mike Pence. And I wonder if like now that it's like a week later or more than a week, do you want to like adjust that? Do you want to walk that back like you want to clarify what you well, meant there we could definitely do some clarification well you know anytime a crowd is chanting anything uh look we we've had many many nasty things chanted at protests over this past year so i don't think we should hang our hat on what they're chanting as being a symbol of what what their intention is that being said um so you know the the, the protest at the time when it first happened uh from my perspective it looked like it Honestly, like every other protest we've had, when you get people protesting, you have a group of people that are upset. They're angry. They're wanting their voice to be heard. Anytime you have a large enough group of individuals, it is easy to see and and, and it's easy to have happen that it will get out of control. So that was definitely my first thoughts around that protest was, you know, it just seemed like it was just like every other protest we had where tempers flared up. They spilled over. Now, since then, yeah, there definitely seems to be that there were some people within the group, uh, you know, within that protest that had planned and kind of pre-planned that they were going to try and take some kinds of actions that they thought might amount to something. I don't know what that amount might be. Um, I don't think it was, I don't look at this as a coup attempt, Eric. And, and, I, and I say that because I don't feel like Donald Trump truly was behind this. He was behind wanting people to champion him. You know, he, he loves to be in the spotlight they had their rally he you know continued on you know banging on his drum because he he is you know narcissistic in that way he likes to the attention focused in on him he wanted people fighting for him and so uh you know to that extent protest go out be heard um the the people within the protest the people that incited the other people that's where i think it really becomes interesting and, and we're starting to learn more since then and and that scenario that's you know kind of interesting. I mean, you know, what what's your take on on who was behind the 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 violence, uh, if you will, that erupted? Donald Trump. Donald Trump is behind the okay. violence because he knew what they were going to do. He has seen his followers doing. I mean, they tried to kidnap and murder the governor of Minnesota. He, he he sees yeah. what happens when he says certain things. When he said, proud boys, stand back and stand by, they made T-shirts the next day with that slogan on them. They have been Was saying it? over and over again, we are ready to fight for this man. We are ready to die for this man. We are ready to kill for this man. That's a cult. And I don't understand how you can... Uh, again, I'm trying to stay civil here. Please understand. I'm not I'm not trying to be <laughs> hostile. I just... I'm, I'm re- And I am really trying to understand. I don't understand how... When, if you're concerned about someone's mental mental faculties, how you could vote for Donald Trump. Because if nothing else, for the last five years, he has proven over and over again that his mental faculties are suspect at best. When he talks about injecting bleach into the lungs, I mean, come on. Okay, one, he wasn't really talking about injecting bleach into the lung. And we get a lot of things taken out of context. And this is actually part of the conversation we should be having, and we will have. Um, But so getting back to why I would vote for Donald Trump, it's it's the policies, the economic policies that he had put in place. I think he actually did a very good job for roughly three years. Now, the last year, I'm going to say it got it, it became uh, 
I was less enthusiastic about Donald Trump over this past year. Uh, you know, again, this was kind of me looking at the choice, the, 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 the two choices that I had in front of me. And ultimately I went with the choice that I thought was going to be best for my family. And it's interesting. I had a conversation with Steve Conger, uh, a good friend of mine. Mm -hmm. And I I believe a good friend of yours as well. Um, and we were talking about, you know, you, 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 you look at what's best for your family and he's a postman. And so he said, you know, I'm, my, my vote is cast because, uh, you know, one of these two candidates is going to, you know, be trying to basically scale back the post office. And I don't want that to happen. And so, you know, he's put, putting his vote for the candidate that is not going to do that for him. So he voted and, for and Biden. If you don't, I mean, I don't know if he's... for Biden. Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah. Right. And so, but, you know, we, we still have our conversations. We still carry on. And, yeah, yeah, and yeah. so, again, this is where I kind of circle back to, uh, you know, I think a lot of individuals, myself included... Just we're looking at a big picture of what's best for my family, uh, and and that's where you know the the vote went. Right. Um, so let me ask this, if you don't mind. And I'm sorry to interrupt, mm-hmm. but like, if if you believe that Donald Trump's presidency has been good for your family, like in what way? Like how are how are you better off than you were five years ago? Economically, my family's grown under his presidency. You know, we we we've done well uh, even through the pandemic. You know, and, and maybe that's a factor of kind of what I do for work and that kind of thing in terms of where we live, but. Um, I've not suffered. I'm better off now than I was back when, uh, you know, Barack Obama left office. So, you know, to that extent, you know, it's been it's been OK. It's been good. Um, right. So but getting back on point to the, the the protest. So one of the things that's emerged and this is this is where I think we even myself take a step back, learn more before we we just cast blanket statements. And so my. My blanket statement, I would take back now because do I think there were bad actors within that group? Do I think there were people that were trying to plot to do something? Absolutely. Do I think they were all Proud Boys? No. Do I actually know now that at least one of those individuals was actually part of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement? Yes. This guy, Jake Sullivan, I think his name is, you know, he basically fired, uh, started up the, the website, um, is it Insurrection USA? So he is in the crowd. You have multiple witnesses account as well as his own video recording showing him engaging the crowd to get them fired up to storm the Capitol. Then he's inside the Capitol. He's still filming. And this gal, Jade Sacker from CNN, is on camera with them saying, congratulations, we did it. And they're talking about, you know, basically getting into, you know, getting people to storm the Capitol and this is where I start to, you know, my tinfoil hat, which I hate because I'm not the biggest conspiracy theory person in the world, but God, after this year, I, I think I have flipped on that in some ways. <laughs> so we have him talking to this reporter and at the very end of it, she says, you know, um, are you recording this? Or I hope you're not recording this. He's like, no, 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 just, you, just, just voices. And then, uh, obviously he didn't, he did record it, but, um, these are the, these are some of the weird things that we have been having happening and, and and so over the summer we had a lot of protests that turned violent and you know we often talked about you know there might be people within those groups that were not there to support the the protest they were actually there just to cause violence and again we're seeing evidence of that same kind of thing happening so i look at this and i think okay 
this what you know again going back to the notion of whenever you have a large enough group of angry people or people that want to be heard and feel like they're not being heard it's easy to get them riled up and to a point of of doing something they normally would never do um you know we had other videos showing people actually trying to pull people off of the wall trying to break the windows of the capitol building they were actually trying to prevent during the 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 protest so I don't think everybody there was there to try and overthrow the government. I think there were a few individuals within that. They, they purposely went there. They purposely were there to cause problems. I mean, people planted bombs at the DNC and the RNC. I know. Like, I, I, I'm, I'm not, th that's the I'm thing. They saying, had zip ties. Yeah. Like, there, I've heard interviews. Yeah. And I, look, I, 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 I'm, I'm I believe, curious about Eric, this John Sullivan guy. I, I did a little searching. CNN has a headline that says Giuliani uses unfounded Antifa argument to defend Trump. It talks about John Sullivan and his brother James. And James is an ardent supporter. Well, he was actually Trump. arrested. He, he was he was arrested. Um, I'll, I'll find it and I'll send it to you. Right. No, that's so I, he, he was arrested. Yeah. yeah. No, CNN says, right. He was arrested and th faces three charges of uh, something, something. I, and I, I, I'm not trying to parse all this right now uh, to right, try to right, figure right. out where, where I am with this. But I mean, you know, that's one individual. There were thousands of people. And I've heard interviews of with course. representatives who said we thought we were going to die. Oh, and course. you know, it, it, it got dire. And, and so, you know, again, kind of walking back from from where I was at when I said, you know, it was a protest out of hand. I've since learned, no, there were bad actors in there. I've seen some of the videos. I've seen some of the images of the guy that had the, the handcuffs, zip ties. Again, I think there were absolutely individuals and, and it could be, you know, and I say individuals, don't think I'm just saying, I'm trying to say it's just one or two people. You know, there were definitely some people that planned and wanted to do something uh, and, and what that was, I don't know, because look, they were not overthrowing the government. They might, you know, maybe their plan was to try and get, you know, take hostages and they thought somehow they could leverage them. Who knows? But at the end of the day, I don't, I, I, I look at this as kind of um, more domestic terrorism than anything, to be honest, um, in that some individuals use this opportunity of the protest to launch their attack. So, yes, there was an attack on the Capitol building and there were individuals that absolutely had bad intentions. The problem we have, I think that there were multiple different groups that were inside of this protest trying to rile up people to do something bad. Um, and, and, and so and do you think a significant number of them might have been BLM or Antifa? I don't know if it was a significant number at all. I, 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 at this point, I don't think it was a significant number, but just one is more than enough to say okay there were at least at least some other people within that group that had ulterior motives and maybe the motive was just to get that group to turn into a protest to to turn into a violent protest um and i i and i, so, I, I like i but i i just can't square that with the fact that the president of the united states for months and months was whipping his followers into a frenzy based on certainty that this was not just an unfair election, but this was like a, a steal. It was a, an assault on democracy right. itself, which it was not. And that, I think, well, is the number one thing that caused the violence at the Capitol. Oh, I, I think Trump fighting for his, uh, you know, his election win, so to speak, uh, was was definitely part of this. You can't say it's not. You know, he, he was not going down without a fight. Uh, it, it, I 
I will say I am disappointed um, in how he responded. I would have liked him to respond a little faster, and I would have liked to have re just responded with a little bit more of um, a uh, unilateral statement as opposed to, you know, Trump typically, whenever he does retractions or, or you know, his... Um, What's the right word? Uh, you know, his, his statements for calming or or his statements, honestly, for, for, for protesting. He always seems to kind of have that comes back on me kind of comments. And so, you know, his initial comments toward the, the, the protesting and, and calling for peace and, and, you know, calming down weren't great. But he's and this is this is one of his biggest faults, uh, I think, as uh, a, a leader, uh, if you will is he is not an eloquent man and so um and, and on top of that he is also very self-centered you know he he is narcissistic when it comes to all of that and so um i think you have to be a little bit to be a president to be honest but that's beside the point um so how he handled that no he didn't handle that great i think he could have handled it better um and and so i was disappointed in that response i was disappointed, you know, maybe he just didn't accept the election results earlier. I certainly was because I think, you know what, at this point, just let it go, go off, enjoy your retirement. You, you have enough money. You're not going to have a problem. You can go off and enjoy life and, and be done with politics. Cause I don't see him ever running again. I don't see him coming back into this forum, but you know, um, well, I so, certainly hope you're right about that. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I severely doubt it, and I don't think he would get the embracement that he he has uh, leading up to this. Um, now, that being said, um, I think there's other things we can talk about, and unless you want to talk further about this, but I do, I do have concerns over the House trying to rush and push through another impeachment vote. Um, and I say that because the way they're going about it is they're just pushing it. They're not necessarily trying to do what they've done in past impeachments, which has been to to have a court, if you will. They they actually get both sides talking. They present evidence. They just push this through. Um, and again, if this. I think where I take concern about a lot of things right now, Eric, is is precedents that we're setting. Because when we start to set these precedents of it's okay to do this, then it it just sets the table for future situations. And so that's that's what I'm mostly I think at this point looking at and thinking, okay, no, we just need to cool the jets on a lot of these things and and take a step back from it. Um I think the country as a whole will do a, we will heal better if we can just get this inauguration done and transfer of power done. Just speak no more of Donald Trump and move past it. Okay, so I appreciate that and I do want us to move forward, but what I said recently in a Facebook video is what I will say to you now, which is when South Africa overcame its apartheid system, they didn't just say, okay, you know, de Klerk needs to just go away and never come back, and we need to move together as a nation. They said, we need to have some kind of justice here. And instead of having 
some sort of retributive imprisonment on a massive scale or mass executions of those who committed the violence. What they said, the black people of South Africa said, we want to have a truth and reconciliation council and we will give amnesty to anybody who can tell us the truth about what they did and face the, the horrors of what was committed under apartheid in order for us to know about our family members who disappeared or, you know, suffered torture or were executed or whatever, because we don't know those things. We want that truth to come out. We want you to engage in an honest discussion as painful as it may be about what you did white you know colonizers uh and then we can try to move forward and that's what they did and east timor did the same thing after they became independent from the indonesian military and i see those as very valuable blue points in this blueprints in this moment because i i, I gotta be honest like but this isn't apartheid. This is we're not even at that level. No, we're not. So. But at the same time, there. Look, I have a friend that I interviewed on the podcast named Sophia. She had to move out of the country because it was not safe for her Muslim children to go to school after Donald Trump was elected because of the bullying and the tormenting that they faced. And I see that as a very powerful sign of the kind of damage that Donald Trump did to our nation at the start of his presidency, and then. Over the course of four years, yes, he helped some people out, economically speaking, but he did a massive bungling, just to give one example, of the coronavirus response, so that a Columbia University research document said that 60% of the deaths that we've seen were preventable, and the economy has continued to fester and worsen because of his mismanagement, and so all of that damage and pain and suffering affects, I think, the nation as a whole. And I don't think we can move forward until we take stock of that to say nothing of the actual loss of life. So that after 9-11, when, you know, several thousand people were killed in a horrific way, we mourned as a nation as we should have. We kept those deaths in our thoughts as we should have. We had rituals of, of mourning as we should have. And we really haven't done any of that with regard to the hundreds of thousands of people who have died as a result of COVID. Well, I mean, if, if you think about... Um what happened with COVID and, and COVID has been, I mean, we, we put it at the blame of so much, but I mean, it, it unfortunately is. Um, and, and in some respects, maybe for the best uh, and, and hear me out as I try and, and, and walk my way through this, this thought um, COVID hit. This country actually was pretty, we, we started kind of coming together around COVID and just being like, okay, this is, you know, we, there was a lot unknown, but overall there still was this kind of unification feeling happening of, okay, well, we're just going to try and figure this out and, and figure out how we, we manage it. We did the 15 days of shutdown that kind of kicked it off one of the most unfortunate things that actually happened in this country was the George Floyd situation. Uh, unfortunate on many levels. Obviously, his loss of life was the, the, the most horrific thing you can possibly see. Um, and so that sparked and, and honestly divided the country in many ways because of the protests that ensued after that, because of the just the, the anger that we all had uh, and also the feeling that we couldn't do anything because we were locked down. We were um, already at a tipping point leading up to George Floyd. George Floyd was like the match to this country. Um, and, and so you, some people will say it's the match we needed. 
Others would say it was the match we never needed. But it, it, it definitely sparked this year to be even more insane and crazy than it already was. And I, and I say that just because it was a roller coaster. Um, so, and, and sorry, I, I, I think I, I got lost within this, this, this train. But, you know, I don't think, you know, from a, a, a standpoint of no, I don't see us being in any way similar to what happened in South Africa, uh, you know, in terms of how we heal. How we heal as a nation is how we've done it every time we've turned over a new leaf of, of new government. We move forward. Um, you know, we have processes in place. We and and they have been challenged. We, we you know we we are our, our foundation got a little bit challenged. You know, and, and and so, but we stood the test of time. And and the Capitol building being rushed and and attacked by these domestic terrorists to me is is no different than the. I mean, you, you think about it. Um, other you know domestic terrorist attacks we've had in the past it's it's a building to me um our government is you know and even the representatives inside actually one of the sorry i i know i'm being i mean i'm this is bad podcasting because right now my my mind is going in a thousand oh, yeah, look directions. there's a lot going on in both of our heads and i'm not i'm not worried about it yeah. go ahead you're fine but you know one of the interesting things and 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 this is this is going to sound like i'm I'm not advocating for violence. I, I never think violence is the right answer. So uh, that, that first and foremost. But one of the interesting things that came of this moment with the Capitol building being rushed and attacked um, is the lawmakers themselves, our congressmen, you know, for years, and, and, and this goes, this is pre-Trump, this is pre-everything. Um, we've had countless congressmen, Republican, Democratic, you know, any side of the aisle, they push agendas. They 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 talk about things in very emotional and um, and sometimes very radical ways. And what was interesting for me was this is I think the first time any of them had to actually experience, in a sense, kind of and I'll say the handiwork, if you will, of what a riot feels like. I don't think any of them, for the most part, with maybe a few had truly ever been in those kind of situations before. And so the one thing I kind of hope that comes from this is that they now understand just how insightful their words can be. Well, I think some and, of and them I say did. their words. And I, and I hope that it really, I hope across the board, many of them do take this in and that in the future, we all can be a little bit more measured from a, a, a uh, representative standpoint from our congressmen, from our, our leaders, that they understand that actually know their words, you know, this is what can happen. But, but okay, um, so I, I think that's, that's an interesting point. And I think that some, some senators and congressional representatives did feel that way. And I say that because after the riot happened, Ron Johnson from Wisconsin, for instance, was planning to object to the vote, and then he decided not to. And I think it was him realizing, okay, th what I'm what I'm talking about in terms of a fraudulent election is having repercussions that could affect me personally. And this is one of the things that drives me crazy about politics, which is so many people don't have the capacity or the willingness to think about how policies are going to affect other people or populations that they're not a part of until it comes 
comes home to hurt them. So a lot of guys, right. for instance, have attitudes towards women which are retrograde and not very intelligent. And then they have a daughter and they go, wow, I really, I really understand now that women have a hard time in our society. And I, I always like to say, I'm sorry for getting it right before I had a daughter. And I think that, you know, <laughs> when you said that you, you vote based on what's good for your family, I think that's great. I think most people do that. However, for me, the question is, how do you define family? Because there's a rapper from Chicago named Capital D who once said, quote, my father taught me, kid, be a man, protect your family. But what if my family is all of humanity beyond these national boundaries and tribalisms, hatred and division, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like one of the things that our nation lacks is a willingness to think in terms of empathy for others and solidarity beyond our own little group of people. And I think that, you know, I, I'm not a person who generally sees problems on the left and right as generally equivalent, because what I see from people on the left with, around whom I spend a lot of time is I want, you know, Medicare for all. I want universal health care of the kind they have in Canada and England and Australia and most other industrialized nations. I want a higher minimum wage so people who work 40 hours a week don't live in poverty. And what I see on the right is a lot of people talking about, you know, it took a jobs and I hate Mexicans and we should build a wall and, and so on and so forth. And, and I feel like the certainty can exist in both of those areas. And you could be certain that we'd be better under communism than we are under capitalism. And that can breed violent, you know, horrors like Mao and Stalin and whatever, just as we can have people being certain of the fact that the you know, election was stolen. And that can lead to, you know, fascistic thinking of the kind we saw from Hitler and uh, Mussolini and the rest of them. So there's obviously examples on both sides of the potential for that violence. But I feel like the question of, you know, how we think as Americans has been often limited in terms of like where our empathy is. And I, I again, I'm not trying to like come down too hard, but but I guess, you know, when I see what happened to so many families because of Donald Trump not doing things well, not following the playbook that Obama left him for dealing with pandemics, firing the, the pandemic, uh, you know, task force that had been established and saying, well, we can get them back quickly if we need to. Uh, that was... I feel like that was kind of an assault on the United States. And so many people died and had loved ones who had to die alone because of it. Not entirely, because, look, don't get me wrong. Any president would have struggled with this situation. France struggled with it. Germany struggled with it. Australia struggled with it. But the, some countries took really smart action and they limited the number of deaths. You know, Jacinta in Australia, who writes into the Veteran Gamer sometimes, she's back with students. Uh, you know, th th there are countries that took much smarter action who had much fewer resources than we did. And, and, and I'm just, again, like my empathy for those families who have lost loved ones is so strong. And, and I'm not trying of to blame course. everything on Trump, but I, I do think he bears a huge burden of responsibility. I think every government bears responsibility for in terms of how they handle the pandemic as we've gone through this. Um, and there have been examples of governments handling it well, governments not handling it well. Um, I mean, you know, if we it, it, and I don't want to get into the pandemic talk, I, I, I will try to limit it because I, I don't want it to derail us from other conversations. But, you know, we talk about the pandemic. Um, uh, there are count. You just look at the numbers across all different countries. And and Eric, it, it 
I don't think there's been an exact science on how best to handle this. There really hasn't. Unless unless you take the absolute totalitarian way of just literally locking people into buildings. And I guess that was one way to handle it. Supposedly China handled it the best. Uh, if we believe their numbers. I don't. But that's beside the point. Um, uh, you know, so could this all have been handled better? Of course. We can Monday morning quarterback this till, till the end of time. And, and what we know now... We know that, you know, we should, you know, ventilators really are the last thing we should probably try and do to to put somebody on a ventilator. We were putting ventilators, you know, people on ventilators early and often because that was what our doctors and our, our scientists thought was the right course. And that actually is not the right course from what, you know, I, I've been reading of late is like, no, ventilators really should be the last thing we should be shooting for. So, yeah, we could have done things better. Yes, there could have been uh better policies put in place early on um and 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 is that a, a failure of leadership sure you can call that a failure of leadership um but it is what it is we you know we can't go back in time we can't fix it back in time um i feel like we have benefited from donald trump on one on one hand in that we do have vaccines now in play and and that well you know you could you know, I know there's been articles out there saying, oh, Operation Warp Speed had nothing to do with it. It absolutely did have everything to do with it. It got these pharmaceutical companies a green light to really speed forward and and really open the, the pathway for them to get these vaccines done and, and created. So, um, yes, there were bad things done, but there have been good things done as well. So, I, I think also... And kind of getting to your point about, you know, kind of America, and, and I do think we have lost um, a little bit of that conversation, the, the, the conversation about what it is to be an American. Um, I think that there is, it, it's it's interesting because there, there's the debate over patriotism versus nationalism. I think America lacks nationalism. And, and some people would say that's a good thing. I personally think in some respects, it's a bad thing. Because if we have kind of this national pride at our core as Americans, and I do think a lot of us have that, then that can be the building blocks that, you know, from where we go. But I think there is a large contingency of people that live and benefit of being in America that don't, and, and they have their own reasons, but they don't have that, that pride of being an American. We have to fix that. We have to find a way to get us back into being unified under that it doesn't mean we have to be totalitarian it doesn't mean we have to be uh you know fascist about how we go about it but there does need to be something that unifies us more than just being human beings that breathe air um and so uh that's one way we can i think start and and and, and i honestly want us to get away from this two political party system because it's interesting you and i both see uh, video game fanboys, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, those those wars are just insane. Xbox, and, and baby, it's all about the Xbox. I know. I, you know I'll kill you if you like the PlayStation. PlayStation. I'm joking. Exactly. I don't. I have an Xbox 360, yeah. but I never play it. But here's the thing: I feel like that mentality has finally made its way into our politics. I don't ever remember us having people so just like. Um so just entrenched as they have been 
And I think it's been about eight years of this that it, you really have seen it kind of coming. And obviously, it really manifested itself in this past year uh, to, to levels we've never seen before. But it's interesting. As I sit back and I look at the political spectrum, and I'm like, God, this this kind of mimics what we see in video games and if, with the fanboy wars. And it's like, you know, is this just because those individuals that were young fanboys are now growing up and so they're t kind of transferring this over? I don't know. But... Um, that kind of just, I, it's, I can only be on this side and there's, it can only be this and it can't be that is that's the, the most dangerous thing we can ever do. Yeah, I agree. I think that polarization is very unhealthy, but again, like I don't see it as well, you know, there's problems on both sides because although there are, I think the fact that Steve Bannon went to the Gamergate community and said, hey, you guys are really angry about this ethics and journalism stuff, huh? <laughs> Let's get you to focus on this other thing. And he did. He got a lot mm -hmm. of people to go right from I hate Anita Sarkeesian to I hate the Democratic Party. And he marshaled them and exploited their pain. That's the other thing that drives me crazy about someone like mm -hmm. Donald Trump is that he went to well, places where people are genuinely suffering in the Rust Belt and in Appalachia. And he said, you are the unheard. I'm going to work for you. He doesn't care about them at all. Okay. No, he no, didn't, they, they, he but... didn't care about Mike Pence. And he turned as soon as someone is not useful to him to feed his yes. ego, as you said, then he turns this back on them and kicks them into a ditch and drives the bus over them. And the fact that so no, no. many people I, I... have been um, not helped by Donald Trump's wall. They have not been helped by his economic policies, but they continue to fashion. Uh, I shouldn't say fascistically, but they, but it is an, it is a cult mentality. I saw a woman at a protest who said had a shirt on that said, "My son died of COVID, and I'm still voting for Trump." That is a level of devotion that I cannot wrap my brain around, and is obviously unhealthy. And I can't imagine anybody support everybody that I know on the left who supports Joe Biden is doing it like grudgingly, like okay. I guess I'll vote for Biden. Right. And it's just, so, it blows my mind but, that so but, many people can can see their families not benefiting and still say, well, you know what? And I, I think it's because of the ideology that they've been hit, not for eight years, but for 40 years, going all the way back to Reagan, who said government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. And so for decades, we've heard over and over again, government is bad. Government is bad. Government is bad. So that whenever anybody comes along and says, we want to put some more money into schools, we want to fix our roads, we want to do this, we want to do that. People go, government, rah! I'm opposed to all government, no matter what it is and how it might actually help me. Okay, yeah. So uh, there was a lot there. Yes. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, the the whole, you know, all government is bad government is, um, I, I think, is absolutely incorrect. Uh, there are levels of government that we need and we want and we have to have. Um, and so, uh, you know, anybody who ever says, you know, all government is bad, look, uh, you know, that that doesn't work. This country won't survive with that kind of... Uh, ideology so we could push that aside uh getting into you know the crazy talk from one side or the other this is this is where again i'm, I'm saying we need to kind of try and figure out how to reset because look there's crazy talk on both sides of the aisle and and i know you hear mostly and 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 you know you see it coming from the right and you're like okay the you know these people are insane just likely, you know, from my perspective, I see tons of crazy talk coming from the left. You know, we had the a, the one of the counsel for PBS is videoed 
talking at a, a bar or something, and he's talking about what they should do if Donald Trump wins the election. And he talks about we should just get Molotov cocktails and circle around his limo. And then he goes on to say, and we need to probably just, you know, uh, if Biden wins, we just need to round up all the Republicans and separate their children from them and deprogram them. That's scary language to hear coming from anybody. Then you start thinking about these are people in places of you know potential power and influence. It gets even more crazy. So there are a lot of crazy thoughts happening on both sides of the aisle. The extremes are what we need to start toning out. And we need to to just block those out somehow and and start getting ourselves back to a middle ground where we can have compromise, where we can have conversations. And you're not always going to get your way. That's part of what compromise means. But we can collectively live together and prosper and flourish and move forward. So I, I agree with that. And of, I, I, I like that's part of why I want to have this conversation is because I, I agree that we should find, again, common ground. How can we find things that benefit all of us and make coalition based on our mutual long term self-interest? I, I, I think that's beautiful. Right. I would say that, and this is the last thing I want to say about this question of, you know, sort of like disparities, because I looked mm -hmm. it up, you know, and, and, and this current.org has a headline, PBS distances itself from former staff attorney ensnared in uh, Project Veritas sting. Yeah, he said horrible things. And, and I agree with you that that's messed up. I guess my point is that we, Donald Trump, I think, represents an example of that radical ideology elected to presidency, right? And Barack Obama has been a centrist. Uh, Joe Biden is a centrist. They are moderate Democrats. Bernie Sanders, AOC are on the left side of the political spectrum. I think we would all agree they're right. pretty, you know, they're the far, they're the far left of the Democratic Party. But, but there's, there's no, I, 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 I can't see. So, so whereas, you know, you have someone like Lou Dobbs or, or, um, you know, uh, Stu Levitan, or I, I don't know specific names, but I feel like we have commentators everywhere and we have individuals who are in, affiliated with PBS, you know, on the left or Fox news on the right or whatever, who, who are going to say things. But when it comes to actually being able to enact policy, I feel like we've seen so many people on the in the Republican Party, get emboldened by the Tea Party and the Freedom Caucus to just keep pushing more and more, you know, draconian, you know, Scott Walker in, in Wisconsin is a good example of just slashing government and just tearing things down and cutting social spending. And then when they get out of office, someone like Tony Evers comes in in Wisconsin is like, all right, we want to put some more funding back into schools. And then the Republicans still continue to fight about it so that what 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 it looks like to heal and to come together is Democrats saying, OK, well, we want, you know, a little bit of the stuff that was taken away back. And Republicans say, we'll give you half of what you want. And what we end up with is this movement further and further to the right every decade to the point where now Democrats are like, OK, you know, we want some money for people who have been unemployed. And Republicans are like, absolutely not. And, and so we're arguing about whether people who have been fired from their jobs through no fault of their own even deserve some money to live under. Well, I mean, here's the great moment. So uh, the great moment for the Democratic Party. Right now, as we look at the next two years, the Democratic Party has control of the House. They have yes. control of the Senate. Right. And, and they have the presidency. So this is the moment for the Democratic Party to show the rest of the U.S. Mm-hmm. Here's here's our good path forward. Here's right. what we, we want to do, 
and let's get some things done and we'll do it responsibly in a good way that everybody can, you know, come up behind it and be like, yeah, you know what? Okay. That wasn't so bad. And for the record, I have and, and, very little faith that they'll do that because I think that the <laughs> Biden administration is filled with centrists the way that Obama brought in people from the Chicago School of Economics who were the ones who helped to facilitate the 2008 crash. And and I think yeah. that's one of the biggest problems that I have. And this isn't about you and me, but, you know, I, I don't have a lot of faith that Biden's going to do a great job here. Uh, right. And that's something that we probably agree on is that there's going to be a lot of bungling well, and and, you know, Democrats are known for not doing a great job. Chuck Schumer doesn't know his head from a hole in the ground. Yeah, uh, we, we won't talk about Chuck. Okay. <laughs> that's fine. Um, uh, but so but this leads me actually to an area that I did want to talk to you about, mm-hmm. uh, which is um, the outside influence into our our, our policy. Yes. Um, and, and I feel like probably even more scarier than the uh, the Capitol building attack for me was the reaction we saw from the tech companies this past week. And there it was a very eye opening moment of our free speech really getting tested and what actually our free speech is and and how reliant we have become on tech companies to carry forward our free speech. Now, you can debate, should Donald Trump be on Twitter or not? Blah, no, blah, blah. I, he should uh, not. Uh, yeah. <laughs> End of debate. Agreed. Yeah. Okay. I, 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 I wished he would tweet less so I can get behind him not being on Twitter. What I can't get behind and what concerns me is when we have these tech companies unilaterally doing this kind of uh, monopolistic approach of literally removing somebody from being able to communicate. And so it was twofold. The scariest thing for me actually wasn't so much Twitter. It wasn't so much Facebook because, look, they have their policies in place. They are private platforms. Um, you know, So if they want to ban somebody because they said some things that were against their policy, that is on them, and, and they can do that. I do want those policies to be unilaterally used and, and, and uh, uh, enforced for all individuals, not just certain individuals. So there's that. And, and I don't think they're necessarily good at that for the record. Um, but what was scary to me actually was Amazon because, you know, there was a, another app called parlor. And I think everybody's heard of parlor at this mm-hmm. point. It was kind of a more conservative Twitter, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, they literally cut them out of the internet. Mm-hmm. Well, they said that you can't use our servers. Right. They said you can't use our servers. But, you know, that collectively with all the other tech companies, um, it was just this moment in time where suddenly it was like, if you don't agree with our policy, you know, your free speech is not going to be allowed. And I know, again, these are private companies, but they represent our, our, our airways right now. You know, we're in all these lockdowns. We're not, you know, social media has been our platforms for being able to be social. And mm-hmm. and so um, this was kind of a scary moment in time. And, and I say that because, yeah, okay, maybe you're on the other side of the coin. And so you're like, good, glad they did it. Great. But what happens when you're now on the other side of the coin? What happens when your value doesn't align with maybe what they want to do? Their influence over us, over our political spectrum, over our, just our our livelihood, if you will, um, like came full front and center, and 
I think many people woke up to the realization of just how powerful these companies actually are. And and this is where I'm like, no, maybe we need to actually have some regulation on these these companies. That's exactly what I was about to say. Yay, common ground. (laughs) Antitrust legislation has been neutered. We have had no, I mean, you know, occasionally Microsoft gets sued for $100 million or something, which is what they find in the couch cushions. But I absolutely agree that Amazon has too much power and Facebook has too much power and Twitter has too much power. Let's break these companies up. That's what we did to Standard Oil when they had too much power because it's you're right. It's not just in terms of like their servers run the Internet. It's also they are affecting democracy in a very powerful way with their algorithms. And if we if if we you know, that's why this sort of thing is so I don't feel like we've had good solutions because they Mm -hmm. say we are not news news outlets. So therefore we don't have a responsibility to provide any kind of nuanced or truthful devotion, but they say we're also not just open plat. We're not just internet providers, right? Internet providers can't be held responsible. if Someone uses their internet service for child porn, right? But a Chan sure as hell can. And so it seems like the tech companies want to be, you know, free from both they requirements. Want it both ways. Yeah, exactly. exactly. They want it both ways, no doubt. And I don't think there's any other solution for our democracy than to break these companies up. And people start to freak out when I say that because they're like, but I like Facebook. I love TikTok. I'm like, you love what they offer, but you don't need it to be all in one company. Because if you broke right. Facebook up, we could still have a company that runs something like Messenger. And then you could have, you know, your friends feed with Facebook. And then maybe the groups would be a different company. But it's possible, you know, I, I, and again, I think that comes back to Reagan, this idea that the government should stay out of business and regulation is, you know, Donald Trump said when he got into office, we can't have any new regulation until we get rid of two other regulations, which is just ludicrous because that's well, what led to I, Flint know, getting no water. No, so so I, I, I don't think regulations are always great. So yeah, I do agreed. think deregulation can be good. It can be. It depends on how it's done. regulations... But exactly. So again, there there is nuance to this conversation. It's not just a unilateral yes or no. Right. Um, and and that and honestly, anybody listening to this, that is the world. The world is not black yes. and white. The world Agreed. is gray. Agreed. <laughs> the different shades of gray. So yeah. we we do need to reel these companies in. We need to um, hold them to some kind of standard when it comes to whether they're if they're reporting the news, then. That's one thing, but they can't consider themselves, uh, you know, free from from being, you know, kind of viewed as a, you know, a news organization. Um, the minute Twitter or Facebook starts putting filters in to limit what you're seeing, they are, in fact, changing the narrative. Um, well, let's so, be clear. They do that all the time. Their algorithms are course. based on of changing course. what you yeah. see and seeing the things that you're likely to either agree right. with very strongly or get mad at, and that's going to increase right. their your engagement. And that's all they care about because it's just about money. Of course. Yeah. No. 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 It, it is all about money, and that that you know, and this holds true also for our media companies. You yeah. Know, oh, sure. Uh, it, Absolutely. It, it is. It's it's funny because you know the cnn's the foxes the msnbc's are no longer news organizations these are opinion uh you know opinion stations basically they report some news but the the vast majority of the popular people on those stations are are just they're peddling their point of view their opinions and far less fact come out of these organizations than we 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 should be getting from our news mm-hmm. companies agreed so 
Um, and, and I will say, you know, you know who benefited the most from all of this? It was the CNNs. It was the MSNBCs. It was the Fox News. Over the past year, their ratings have been going crazy, you know, up and down spikes right. because of all of the nonsense that's been going on in the world. Right. And, chaos and is good it. for them and chaos is yeah. good for markets. Volatility yeah. helps markets out. People on Wall Street yeah. do great when they're, you know, when the war in Iraq happened, oil prices went crazy high and people benefit yeah. from that. Yeah. And so I think no, it's necessary no, so we, for we, us we to agree. say, yeah, like what, what do we really need as people and how is, and again, like this is probably going to be something that we disagree on, but you know, how does capitalism's focus on profit get in the way of what people actually need in terms of peace and facts and truth and information and solidarity and love? Because those are factor, those are non-market friendly concepts. No company mm -hmm. has ever really gotten ahead by selling love and harmony. They get ahead by selling discord and hostility and anger and and all the rest of it. I, you know, I I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily disagree with that. So there, all right. Uh, you know, I I think, um, but yeah. So you know, just kind of circling back into this, that I think we could agree that uh, our tech companies are they you know that they, they have become giant gorillas and and they are as influential as any political party if you if, personally you know I, I look at them as being one of the biggest influencers sure. in not only our elections but yeah. foreign elections you know it was interesting because twitter after they banned trump there was a thing with uh was it ecuador or you can't uh, i forgot which now Dang some it. other country uh, yeah some other country but they, they said you know hey we've been uh you know hearing uh you know uh state run uh uh requests to block individuals but we believe in free speech and mm -hmm. we don't believe in blocking anybody and, right. and impacting an election and i'm like mm, this is pretty funny well i mean okay <laughs> but, so and this is this leads us to this sort of bigger global question i'm glad you went there like you know one of the things that people have said about facebook is that they sat by while um uh, and I can't remember the name of the party in India, the sort of Hindu nationalist party in India, used Facebook to spread this vitriolic, violent hatred toward Muslims, which led pretty directly to purges and murders of Muslim people in India. And that's mm -hmm. a pretty, you know, that's obviously a very dramatic example. But if we look at the Balkans, right, the former Yugoslavia, one of the reasons why the United States bombed television stations in Sarajevo is because Milosevic was using them to whip up hatred of the Serbs and saying, or I, I might even have the groups wrong. I don't remember exactly who was who, but, but you know what I'm saying? Like the government, the people who are committing to ethnic cleansing, so to speak, were using the TV stations as a way to get that out. And we saw the same in Rwanda. And so what I always thought of as, you know, and I, I, I had a problem with that. I was like, that's a civilian institution, right? The people who are, you know, doing the news broadcasting, they don't have weapons. And a friend of mine was like, look, there was no other way to stop the incessant braying for blood that was coming from Milosevic than by taking out his TV stations. And the only way to stop the Rwandan genocide was to take down the radio stations. And I think it shows us that the line between the people doing the fighting in these wars or genocides or ethnic cleansings or whatever it is, and the people who are whipping them up is not quite so clean and clear as we would like to think so that we could say, well, you know, look, the people who do the killing, they have to take responsibility for themselves. And, uh, you know, that by taking that logic to its extent, then Osama bin Laden isn't really to blame for 9-11. But of course he is. <laughs> I'm glad you said that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, well, 
I think you know this is the, this is the challenge we face uh, just as as a world moving forward. Mm -hmm. um, our our technology, you know, we create all of these communication avenues. Um, I always will be concerned about trying to block communications uh, when when governments try to block communications or they use state-run TV to push narratives. Uh, you know that that is that's using this technology, you know, the way in which I personally feel like it was not meant to be this. The technologies we've created is about communicating openly, but obviously it can be twisted. It can be manipulated. Um, I don't think we're ever going to have a perfect, you know, uh, situation, utopian situation where it's all run perfectly. Right. And, and, you know, it is what it is. So, you know, it, it, it always is going to be, potentially uh, manipulated and used for for bad um that's why you know uh, you know i'll take this back to america uh just because uh, the united states i should say um you know within countries you know within our borders we have a responsibility to 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 kind of manage ourselves and you know, as the United States, we have had a lot of influence in other countries. We are dirty with our hands in a lot of other countries. Mm -hmm. I know this, and I'm not going to pretend we aren't. You know, we have self-interest. We put that out there. We try to manipulate things. And and this is a year where we saw other countries actually putting their hands into, you know, not this year. This has actually probably been going on for many years. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, where other, other foreign governments have done the same back to us. Oh, yeah. And... I think just the past four years was the first time we really took stock of it and said, wow, no, actually, we were really getting, you know, outside influences mm -hmm. trying to impact us. Mm -hmm. um, we have to be vigilant to this. And yeah. and so this is something that it, it will always be a problem, Eric. I, I don't know that we have a silver bullet solution to that. But I think part of it is keeping a thumb on these tech companies, these communication outlets, not so much to keep them down. But a, a thumb to keep a pulse on them and keep them honest. Um, now, when it comes to other countries and how they're manipulating their own state-run TVs, that kind of thing, you know, I, I, I don't know what to say to that because I don't want us to be always having to be the policemen of the world because obviously I think our own agendas often will influence how we police uh, depending upon who's, a, you know, president, who, you know, what we're interested in at the time. So... It gets dangerous for us to always be the cops around the world. But on the other hand of it, when it's obvious situations where we can step in and help out for for really bad situations, then, you know, that's, uh, I guess, a judgment call at the time. So this, um, I guess what I would say to that is that, and I agree with that, and, and I, I guess I don't, I've never really liked the whole U.S. global cop metaphor because it suggests that we have, you know, I'm, well, every police officer. Right. And, <laughs> well, no, no, but every police officer has their own sort of motives, obviously, you know, just as every teacher has their own motives, every citizen has their own motives. But I think that in general, when someone joins the police force, as when someone joins the military, and I, I can't remember, have you served in the U.S. military? I have not served. Okay, no. I, for some reason I thought you had. Um, but, you know, I think that everybody who takes on some sort of public service like that is doing so because they want to serve and protect. They want to, you know, uh, help out. And, and and I don't know that I see the United States as always having that motive. And more to the point, that's why I think that 
international organizations and international agreements can are really the way to go because then it's not just one country saying, well, look, this situation happens to benefit me, so I'll support this group of people because that will help me in the long term um, or in the short term, uh, and then I'll sort of cut my hands and run when it gets nasty or whatever, and I'll ignore the same kind of situation when it doesn't benefit me personally, as we saw in East Timor, uh, and and maybe even support the people doing the killing. And, and I think mm-hmm. that an international perspective can help with that. The, I, I, I like to focus on the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and UN agreements that have said, here's what we ought to do as a global community about this situation. Um, and, and, and that's why I bristle at the notion of nationalism, which you mentioned earlier. You, you presumably don't have any sense of California being better than Wisconsin in any really meaningful way. I mean, you, we can argue about sports no, are, teams and whatever. No, right, exactly. I mean, you know, haha, okay. But at the end of the day, just as I don't see um, the United States as really being in any meaningful way superior to Canada, you know, so that Fraser Moore isn't my enemy just because he lives in another country, right? I think that's right. the thing that nationalism can hurt us with is this notion that we're better because we're Americans and therefore our policies don't need to be examined uh, and we don't need to, uh, you know, that that nationalism. Again, I love patriotism. I think love of the country is beautiful. But to me, nationalism is when we start to think we're better than other people because of our country division in the same way that it would be ridiculous for us to have an actual hostility toward people from Georgia when we live in Wisconsin in the same way that, you know, so we should build a wall to protect Wisconsin from Georgia. That just seems ludicrous to me. Yeah, no, well, that that is ludicrous. Uh, clearly, it would be the other way around. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, yeah. But no, and, and I get what you're saying. Nationalism and patriotism, there are fine lines and, and, and it's easy to go over them and for it to become negative, for it to become uh, a, a, a negative versus a positive, for sure. Um, so, you know, I'm not advocating for extremes here, but I, I do feel like having a sense of national pride and, and that could be patriotism. That could be a little bit of nationalism. I don't think those are necessarily bad things, but again, with, with some nuance with, you know, it can't be extremes when you get to the extremes. And and that is the danger, obviously, is it can easily go to extremes. Um, you know, that is where you get into problems. Mm -hmm. That's when you run into dangerous thinking. Um, I don't see, you know, I look, I will be honest. I do think the United States is better than most other countries out there. I think it's better than probably 99% of most countries out there. Um, and, and so, uh, yeah. Do I think I'm better than Fraser Moore's? Yeah, it's questionable. I like the guy, but, um, but, you know, but I do have that sense of our country is a great country. And, and so I take pride in that. And I do have a bit of patriotism for this country in saying that I, you know, I do want to protect our Declaration of Independence and what we founded this country on, the base principles of it, because I feel like, you know, we are um, overall what people want in their, their, their government, in their mm-hmm. country, mm-hmm. overall. And, you know, the promise of what the America, the United States brings is what a lot of everybody else wants to strive toward. So, yeah, I, I do take that pride and I have that sense of nationalism around that. And I, now, and I, and I love I that. And I, to, sorry, go ahead. No, no, I was just going to say, I'm not going to, but then sit there and, and 
I don't think we can tell other countries, and, and this was proven in Vietnam, by the way. We tried instilling our own values into another country, and that did not work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've tried to do that many times over the course of, of our existence. Uh, you know, Iraq, Iran, you can look at that whole Middle Eastern area where we've tried to you know, say, we're going to come in and we're going to be the good cop and we're going to set things right. Uh, and it just, you know, and, and the interests behind that, obviously, also, I should say, are self-interest. They're not truly necessarily the best interest, uh, you know, in, in terms of some of those situations. Right. Um, so I think so, we Yeah, I mean, to- look, I, I agree with you. And I think that, you know, the things that make America the greatest – uh, there's a reason that Chinese protesters in Tiananmen Square made their own little miniature Statue of Liberty, right? Like mm-hmm. they see, they saw America as this beacon of freedom and opportunity. And I think that's beautiful. People coming to the United States from, you know, uh, war-torn, you know, Central Africa, they see the United States as this land of opportunity, which is wonderful. And I think one of the things that I, I, I want us to keep in mind as Americans is that, you know, and I, I've written about this a lot on my blog and, and shared it online. There are things about this country that I love that I haven't appreciated always in the past. And I'm tr- I'm trying to keep those things in mind. So, yeah, you know, I, I think it's very easy for us to take things for granted as Americans. And I agree with you on that. But I also would say that what 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 really makes America a great place to live for some of us is not afforded to all of us, which is what Martin Luther King was saying when he talked about this check that America owes the black people, because the promise that it offered to Americans has never in the past really been offered to every American. And I think that, you know, when you said earlier that the the George Floyd situation divided the country, I feel like it just brought a division that had been festering for decades to the forefront. In other words, when the Rodney King video came out in the early 90s, People were shocked and outraged. Oh, my God. But it didn't surprise me. It outraged me. But it didn't surprise me because I had heard people for years and years before that talking about that kind of police brutality, but we didn't have video evidence of it. And so I think the George Floyd killing was shocking and alarming to a lot of people. But again, some people weren't surprised by it. They said, yes, we see this every day in our community. And it's just the fact that a lot of white folks didn't have a lot of familiarity with that kind of violence. And so that's why we saw Mitt Romney protesting with the Black Lives Matter marchers, which I never thought I would see. That was pretty interesting. Um, but I, I do think that it, 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 it was a way of people saying like, wow, this is really messed up. And the fact that we don't have protests every day right now, I worry, means we're going right back to this violence of normal where if it doesn't affect me personally, Personally, I'm, or I'm not seeing a video footage of it, then it can't really be that big a deal. You know, uh, it's interesting because, you know, the George Floyd situation, on one hand, we, we, we had immense division that rose up from that. Um, but also there was a lot of unity that happened in the immediate aftermath of that. I don't think anybody, uh, I mean, collectively, everybody agreed it was horrific. It was brutal. It was something that never should have happened. Shouldn't, you know, there's so many things you could say to it uh, that, you know, it, it, it galvanized pretty much the entire United States. Now, the division that happened from that after that, um, you know, again, I, I look at it and I see there were, I feel like there were a lot of bad actors that came in and tried to opportunize uh, this, you know, opportunize the situation and, and, make um make a hard situation truly uh, uh, that's not the way i want to say that 
let me just put it this way. Um, you know, we saw protests in, in, in Minnesota, in Wisconsin, we saw every state in the union, in, many, many countries, yeah, yeah, pretty much yeah. every state in the union had, yeah. had some protests. Yeah. But then I see situations like in Seattle mm. where they tried to carve out their little, their, the Chaz autonomous zone. Yeah. What they were calling. Right. Yeah. And they did a terrible Again. job. Let's just be honest. It was a disaster. <laughs> it was a total disaster. But, yeah. uh, you know, it, you could also say that was also an insurrection. They were trying to literally carve out. Well, their it's an important country, question. Yeah, know. exactly. They were going up against but, the institution of public safety. There's no doubt about it. Yeah. But so, but I feel like the people behind those movements weren't really about the Black Lives Matter movement. They weren't really about trying to make sure we had justice uh, you know, uh, across the board unilaterally being, uh, you know, given it was they were taking some opportunity to capitalize on the situation that was happening. You know, we had looters hitting stores and and yes, you can make the argument that, well, OK, you know, a lot of these people are angry and they are they're lacking in, in terms of what they they have in their own personal life. And so they're just reacting, they're lashing out and they're taking something back. But I saw so many pictures of people driving up in freaking BMWs and Camaros and jumping out of their cars and running into stores and then running back out. So I think that's where some of the division that happened over the riots was that you saw genuine protests and situations like I, the, the one of the most moving things I saw was the one on the Brooklyn Bridge. I think it was a Brooklyn Bridge where everybody just laid down and they, they laid down for, uh, you know, uh, the, the the George Floyd protest and it was just this really like emotional and and poignant protest. Um, but then you had you know these such other situations where you know people were just breaking into stores, they were burning things down, they were just being violent for violence' sake and taking things when you could clearly see these people were driving up in a Camaro and a BMW. This one particular one that stands out in my head, I saw it, it was in Minnesota, I think, and I'm just like okay. <laughs> Well, this is just getting beyond ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, look, there's always going to be a, Mark's calling the lumpen proletariat, the people who are just out to benefit mm -hmm. personally from a chaotic right. situation. They don't have any political consciousness. They're not involved in the struggle in any meaningful way. But for me, the bigger question is, you know, how do we get systematic change? Because it, it, it's always, you know, it's not a question for me about a few bad apples or individuals who, you know, did something terrible or horrible, should not be cops, et cetera, et cetera. It's about the fact that this pattern keeps happening everywhere around the country and about how, you know, Matt Taibbi wrote a really good book called The Divide about how laws are enforced differently in different parts of the country, people committing different crimes. That, for me, is the real problem. And so I agree that, you know, a, a peaceful, they're called die-in protests, which we did a bunch for East mm -hmm. Timor in the, in the 90s. Those are very powerful. I agree. I think Martin Luther King's path was the path that I would have been a part of in the 1960s because I believe in nonviolent resistance. But on the other hand, I understand what causes people to be, um, you know, more militant because they keep seeing people in their community getting shot and killed by cops. And they feel right. like, you know, a peaceful protest isn't getting the message across. It's not stopping the murder of their loved ones. Uh, and so what do we do next? And, and I think that, you know, Mar uh, uh, John F. Kennedy said those who make nonviolent change uh, impossible make violent change inevitable. And I feel, I really feel like that's what we saw when Seattle went to this autonomous zone. And look, there were obviously some people there who were like, I want to try an experiment in radical anarchism or whatever it is. But I also think there are a lot of people there who said, 
we can't trust the police to actually serve and protect and not kill unarmed black folks. So instead, we're going to try to create something else. Now, again, as I said, it was a disaster because they didn't actually create something. They just said, let's get rid of what's there. And and that's a failure of imagination because you have to replace it with something else. Um, but right. but again, for me, the, the real question is, is it a systematic thing? And how do we get that systematic change versus are we going to have a few people who are sentenced and then the overall system doesn't change? Well, so we've made strides in this country. Yes. Uh, are we perfect? No. Uh, do we have room to grow? 100%. So it is going to be through education. It's going to be through better systems and policies in place. That's why I'm a teacher. screening for our police forces. Yeah. Uh, you know, better better training. Uh, that's the only way this is ever going to change. And, and consequences is, is for education. those who break the law. Consequences for cops well, who course. kill people who of are course. unarmed. There, there, there has to be some kind of consequence to those that actually are breaking laws, uh, are doing harm to others, uh, you know, uh, in the, the guise of being, you know, part of the law. You know, I, I, I don't think there is indefensible situations uh other than um if you know the the police officer is truly being threatened and and i will say this anytime you brandish a weapon whether it's a knife a gun that's a weapon it could be a pipe if you come at an officer with that i do not expect that officer to not shoot to kill well right there are rules of engagement that are different when someone right. has a weapon there's no i think we both agree on yeah. that absolutely so, yeah. So and they should be different because said, the cops shouldn't be expected to sacrifice their life for that individual with a weapon. That's, and, that's, and, and that's, that's the, think, sorry, I just want to say this. That's something that drives me crazy a lot of times when people talk about these protests is because they say like, well, clearly the cops should have done this. It's so easy to armchair quarterback those situations. I wouldn't <laughs> want someone saying to me, you know, well, in your classroom, you ought to teach like this. You ought to do things like this. Because if you haven't spent a day as a teacher, you don't know what it's like, right? right. But at the same yeah. time, I would say there's a reason I haven't written a kid up in 15 years. There's a reason yeah, well, why some police officers and some police departments don't have these same kinds of problems because they're doing things differently. I would agree. And, 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 you know, what's interesting is, and I think what one of the bigger problems we actually have within the police forces, you can say even the fire departments, a lot of our, our, our services type organizations is I think a lot of, you know, you, it's funny because you were talking about it. I meant to talk about it at the time, but you talked about, you know, police officers, you know, the majority of them are signing up there. They want to do good. They, they want to be a, you know, a public safety servant. And I agree with that. However, I think we also have uh, for some time, you know, the police force candidates coming into the police force. Um, I think there's, there's two, what I consider kind of bad apple type candidates. Uh, one is the overly, you know, militaristic kind of, you know, I'm on the law kind of guy. Uh, but then you also have the guy that, or, or gal, that's signing up because it pays good. It's got good benefits. Mm -hmm. That's the last person I want being a cop. Yes, amen. Um, because it, those people are the ones that get scared. They're the oh, ones yeah. that don't handle the situation oh, properly. Yeah. And right. that's where we have some of these situations emerge. Yeah.
And, and I'm so glad you mentioned that because I've had my sound clips ready to go, but I haven't used them because I didn't want us to be in this situation. Oh, God, I feel like we're podcasting <laughs> with Duke now. But when you talk about that, it makes me think of The Simpsons when the guys are, you know, Marge is trying to become a cop. And he says, yep. being a cop isn't something that happens overnight. It takes a full weekend of training to get that badge. And then we have this. Forget about the badge. When do we get the freaking guns? And he said, hey, I told you, you don't get a gun until you tell me your name. I've had it up to here with your rules. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely. And I think that, you know, uh, the, the question, uh, you know, well, we could have this conversation forever about like what should be the requirement for a police officer. But, but I guess my, my thing is, you know, I do believe in the concept of defunding the police, not because I, I want to, you know, prevent them from having bulletproof vests when they go into dangerous situations, but because I don't think we need to send police to every situation that requires someone else's help and that to me is what it really means is like we fund mental health services we fund a dispatch team that could go to a place where there is a domestic violence situation and they can call cops for backup if they need it but the first person to arise on the scene isn't in that mode of like i i have to be ready to kill somebody because they might have a weapon they come at me with it yeah and i think also to your point um, and, and I think we can agree on that. But I think the, the, the thing that needs to be nuanced or, or better clarified, uh, and I think that was also really being taken out of context by a lot of individuals in, of, on both right and left, is what the notion of defund the police means. Uh, I don't support defunding police departments with nothing to replace it. Yeah. If you want to tell me, hey, we want to scale back some of the funding for the police department because we're actually going to bring in some, some you know, uh, psycho psychotherapists uh, mm -hmm. that are actually going to train with the police mm -hmm. and they can go out on domestic violence calls. Mm -hmm. That to me isn't defunding the police. That to me is actually funding the police for additional resources. If you're going to tell me in Chicago we're actually going to take a lot of cops off the street and we're just going to just take the cops off the street. That's a bad plan. That's not, that's not, you know, that is defunding the police in a very negative way. So my thing is fund the police differently, allocate resources, uh, however you need to, 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 to better meet the needs of society. I, I have no problem with that. If you want to tell me, we just don't want as many cops on the street as we have. I'm going to say, why? Because to me, if, if you're not replacing it and you don't have something to actually benefit the public, right. just pulling cops off the street is a bad, a bad solution. So I, I, I am inclined to agree with that. And I, I mean, I, I don't I, – I, I, it's funny because I – a lot of my white friends will say like, well, you know, the black community says that, you know, some people want to abolish the police. And, and I understand where they're coming from because the concept of a police state is ultimately there to protect those who have wealth and yada, yada, yada. But I, I often laugh because I say, well, you know what? A lot of older black folks I hear from say, we don't want cops gone. We want cops to be around. However, I also think that when people say, and I would love to, maybe we could do a role play or something like, if I'm living in Compton and most, you know, 90% of my interactions with police are, hey boy, where are you coming from? Where are you going to up against the wall, you know, stop and frisk? Then yeah, I want fewer cops around because all they ever do is harass me and make my life difficult and make me think that I'm about to get shot to death the way that Ta-Nehisi right. Coates's friend from college did. And that I think is what drives a lot of people to say defund or abolish the police in that sense of like, just get them gone because they don't have any positive interactions with cops. They don't, all cops are to them 
or you know, in the words of Boots Riley from the coup, the cops are just some handicappers on the street next to broken glass and candy wrappers. And the only purpose that cops <laughs> serve in your life are to crack you on the skull once in a while and harass you and pull you over for no reason. And then possibly you worry that you might get shot to death. Well, and, and, and I think we can all agree, or at least I hope we would all agree that Nobody should be living in fear like that. You, mm. you, the, the police need to be a resource to call upon for your protection, not, mm-hmm. uh, you know. But I guess that does beg the question of, you know, it, obviously, anytime you're calling on a police officer or a police officer is coming into a situation of, um, you know, they're, they're having to confront somebody, there's there's kind of the two sides of that coin, right? Uh, the person that's being confronted, obviously, mm-hmm. is likely thinking they're in the right. Right. Uh, you know, so that's, again, where we have the training, the education. Uh, and, and there is, unfortunately, you know, the, there are going to be mishaps. There are going to be bad situations that go even worse. I want us to get to a point where we, do, we stop talking about race in those situations. And we just say, you know what? Somebody got shot. That, you know, it's sad. Um, you know. And and just to kind of put a bow on this, because um, I know we've gone way longer than I even thought we might. Yeah. Um, I I you know I think about like what happened at the Capitol. The the life I mourn the most is the police officer that lost his life mm-hmm. uh, during that whole incident. Mm-hmm. I, I feel well, like I, I, horrific. I, I, I don't died. tend to say that one life is more tragic than another that's lost. No, I no. am mourning the loss yeah. of Ashley Babbitt's life. I think that is terrible and tragic. Well, and 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 so what I wanted to say is. I feel horrible that she lost her life. I feel horrible that three other people died from medical conditions during that time. I, I, I don't want anybody ever to die. But I, I don't... They put themselves in that situation. Ashley Babbitt did rush sense? into the Capitol trying yes. to break through the exactly. There's no doubt about it. So when, when you do things like that, when you are doing something bad, at the end of the day, if something bad happens back to you, I don't sit there and be like, "Oh, that should have never happened." Yeah, no, you you kind of you you rolled your own dice there. Well, there is so, a question of personal responsibility. Absolutely, I yeah. agree. With that. <laughs> anyway, uh, so I I do need to cut us off at some yeah, point. Yeah, no, that's here, that's but... fine. I really appreciate again you conversating with me like this. I I I know that it's been you know we both feel very strongly about things, but I do think this has been a very good conversation. I really do appreciate you coming into this situation where I, you know that I'm not going to be, you know, very right. um, uh, conciliatory all the time. Because I are saying, I, I, I'm going to try to draw lines on and say, like, I need you to understand this, or like, I'm going to argue passionately about it. But nevertheless, I do think that this shows that we can have these conversations in ways that are useful and productive, and that you've given me stuff to think about that I will continue to think about. And hopefully I've given you some stuff to think about that you will continue to think about. Absolutely. And, and you know, one of the, the happiest takeaways from this is how many times we said, I can agree with that. Absolutely. And that <laughs> deserves this sound credit. Because that's a victory achieved. Oh, victory <laughs> achieved. There we go. All right. All right. I'm going to stop with the sound clips now. Greg DeLacy, thank you so much for this conversation. I hope you have an awesome weekend and uh, I hope to talk to you again soon. Eric Piotrowski, likewise, thank you so much for having me on the show. America!